Hello and welcome to a new episode of Football, the podcast where football meets politics. I'm Dr. Francesco Belcastro and here with me is my co-host, Dr. Guy Burton. Hello, Guy. Hi, Francesco. How are you doing? I'm fine. I've heard that you absolutely broke the bank to buy a new cool laptop and now you cannot connect the microphone. Is that true? Don't, 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 don't tell the listeners that. I mean, no, anyway, is that why you... Is that why we cannot hear you very well, Guy? Yes, I know. It's very poor. Very poor. But there you go. We'll, we'll get it sorted out by next week. So tell me, Francesco, what do we talk about this week? Today we've got a fascinating topic and a great guest. So today the topic is the politics of football ultras. Um, we're going to be covering different aspects of it uh, and different regions of the world, which I think is great for listeners who might be interested in you know, the Middle East or Europe or, or other parts of the world or Indonesia. And, and we got an excellent guest to do that, um, James Montague. Now, a lot of uh, listeners will be familiar with James' work. Um, James is a journalist and, a, and an analyst. He has published four books on different aspects of um, football, um, fan culture in particular, but not only. Um, he's also a contributor um, on different publications. He's um, reported extensively for the New York Times, CNN, TIFO, BBC. Uh, his work has appeared in several newspapers. And is the founding editor of Delayed Gratification, which is the first, the world's first slow journalist magazine. Welcome, James. How are you? I'm, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Let's start with a sort of broad, generic question, if that's okay. I mean, you've worked extensively on supporters, um, particularly on the ultras and organized fans more in general. Um, can we talk a bit about the roots of the so-called ultras culture? I mean, and also, are we talking about kind of a single phenomenon that started somewhere and spread around the world? Or is it more kind of a series of different regional trends that, that we kind of bring together? It, well, it's kind of both, which is kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, on the one hand, you do have there is a there is a birthplace of ultra culture, which people will associate with Italy. And that emerges out of kind of Italian culture. I mean, um, ultra comes from the Latin, comes from the Italian to go beyond. Right. So the, 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 what we see today is modern ultra culture. I mean, the aesthetic, the language in many cases, certainly the organizational principles of it. Um, most of the aesthetic comes from Italian ultra movement, which kind of emerges in the kind of late 50s and 60s, kind of popularized in the 70s and 80s and becomes kind of globally famous in the 1990s. But if you look at where this idea of fans becoming engaged and becoming obsessively engaged as a participant in the spectacle, then you have to go back to the start of the 20th century to Uruguay and the club Nacional, where there is a kind of, there is almost, you know, patient zero of the kind of ultras apocalypse happens, you know, there. Um, and there's a, there's a character there. Who's the guy who kind of blows up the balls, Miguel Prudencio Reyes, who's, He's he's the, he's the guy who blows up the balls. That's what his job is. And his kind of he also kind of goes crazy pitch side during national games. And what's kind of interesting about this guy is that at the time, football in Uruguay was like going to the opera. People got mm -hmm. dressed up. People went and watched the match. They applauded very politely. It was a very genteel game. It was very, um, you know, almost middle class type <laughs> of uh, attraction. Um, and this guy brings kind of a lack of decorum and kind of passion and you know breaking that kind of fourth wall with the pitch where I mean he doesn't actually get onto the pitch but in terms of kind of his interaction with the players mm -hmm. and the play it, it, it's infectious and so Nacional starts to have this kind of atmosphere that players respond to it and they start playing better and they want more of that and yeah want mm -hmm. more of this you know there's, there's an exchange 
And at that time, at the beginning of the 20th century, like in, you know, in the 1910s, they start going to playing in, in River Plate, they play, they're crossing the River Plate, they go and play in, in uh, at Boca, in Buenos Aires, you know, and other clubs. And this starts to spread all through Argentina. And interestingly, what you have in Argentina, if you go to the Boca neighborhood, the Boca neighborhood, they they take this, they, they you know, they, they've got something kind of bubbling at the same time as well, because they, you know, it's the vast majority of people there have Italian descent. They've come from mm -hmm. Italy on boats for a better life. Um, and this finds fertile soil and explodes into what we, we now see as the Balasplavas culture, which is not ultra culture, but it's very, very similar and yeah. very definitely has a very Italian feel to it in many respects. Um, and you, at the same time, you also have the Torcida culture, which kind of comes out of Brazil a little bit earlier. Um, so there are multiple places where this is happening, but at the same time, it is kind of connected. And then it's kind of, you know, it becomes this huge South American cultural phenomenon, whether it's in the Portuguese part of South America or the Spanish speaking part of South America. And then after the 1950 World Cup, it kind of migrates back to Europe, to Croatia, via the Yugoslav national team who go to the World Cup. The Croatian players on the team hear this noise going on at the Malacana, um, by one of the biggest torcedas from Flamengo, who, you know, one of the leaders mm. brought on board to be the, the, the fan leader for the for the whole Brazilian national team. They make this incredible noise. Apparently, the one one of the players describes it as it's a machine that stomps. And he says, right, we've got to bring this back. They describe it, not even, they don't even have a recording of it. They describe this noise to people back in Split, where a lot of these players play for. They play for Hajduk uh, on the Adriatic coast. And then what happens is they recreate this noise for the title decider against Red Star Belgrade in the 50-51 season. And it's so raucous. Hajduk win, but it creates a political um, uh, crisis in the new Yugoslavia because they see it as a rise of uh, kind of Croatian nationalism, which they've just mm -hmm. ultra, which they've just kind of stamped out with the end of the Ustashi and the, the reconvening of Yugoslavia under Tito. So, you know, uh, it's banned after one game by the authorities in Belgrade. So it kind of makes the circuitous route and then it finds landfall back in Europe and eventually, you know, where it finds the, the you know, its roots in Europe that, that kind of go on further than that is in, in, in Italy kind of a decade later. So it's a really interesting, for me, mm -hmm. when I was looking at the kind of birth of, of ultras, it's a story of globalization, right? And mm, yep. the speed with which cultural influences take place. I mean, people think globalization is a fairly modern phenomenon. Of course, it's not. It's just the speed at which globalization takes place is a modern phenomenon. And so you have essentially something that moves through people, right, and word of mouth, and then through, you know, the speed at which a boat can cross an ocean, and then mm. through radio, and then television, and ultimately the internet. And that's what takes ultraculture from a localized phenomenon, which is still in many respects is a localized phenomenon, but with a global appeal and become something that influences curves now, whether it's in Indonesia, in North Africa, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, where it's, it's found very fertile soil. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating example, I think, and a fascinating uh, way of looking at how, how, how a message and how a culture can spread. 
can so I, James, can I guy, guy who is a who is a Anglo-Brazilian Flamengo fan is going to take yeah. out this the Flamengo fan that the ultras culture. That's, that's going to yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, it's guy is going to say. James, yeah, like you said, I, the Flamengo started the yeah, Ultras culture. But no, no, I, but the question I wanted to ask you, James, because one thing you mentioned was that you have the Bajas Bravas down in Buenos Aires, you have the Tortillas yeah. in Brazil, and yet yeah. you say there are similarities, but there's also something slightly different about each of yeah. them as well. And and yeah. they're not exactly like the Ultras. So what is it about the Tortillas and the Bajas that's different from, from the Ultras? If we talk about Italian ultras, for instance, for a second, right? We talk about the bell towers, the Campanilismo, mm-hmm. right? This is the representation of our town, our uh, city, our neighbourhood, our bell tower, right? And it, and what it does that that little curve at the stadium is is representative of a very local geography, and that's exactly the same when it comes to the difference between Brazilian, uh, so Portuguese speaking South America and Spanish speaking South America. You know they are very they are very different cultures and they bring with it very different sounds, um, aesthetics, um, organizational principles, uh, histories where where they came from and why they came from. That I mean, if you look at the um, at the beginning of uh, Flamengo's kind of main tortilla, for instance, you know you can look at Carnival and how that came in and that this. I mean, I'm sure you know Alex Bellos's book because mm-hmm. this description yeah. of how Carnival enters into the stadium and becomes something. Uh, which frightens the football authorities because they don't know how to deal with it because you're taking the kind of sound mm. and noise and aesthetic of Carnival and then you're ma- mixing it with the passion of football, creating something yeah. kind of extremely you know frightening to them. And um, in South America, there's a there's a heavy European Italian influence mixed in with all the other influences that you find in Argentina and in Uruguay at the time. So all of all of it means is that the fan culture is is a mirror on whatever the local culture is. So you'll find that the Torcida is exact, not exactly representative, but it's certainly representative of a certain working class culture mm-hmm. um, in Brazil. And you find exactly the same in Buenos Aires, but from, from a different perspective. And one thing that emerges clearly from your, from your work is that um, football fans and ultras are often um, political actors. Yeah. Um, can we say that all of them are the distinction between sort of apolitical and, and political ones? What's what's the kind of situation there? If we can I generalize, guess, of course. I mean, I guess you know, in a way, everybody is political and everything is political. So, I mean, it's very difficult. Not every interaction you have in life is political in some way. Right? So that's very. It's very difficult for me to always to to separate that. But if we do try and do that in ultra groups, um. I gravitate towards telling stories of groups that have have a political mm-hmm. um, agenda or have found themselves at the center of political events. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're all ultra groups are political. I mean, if you go to Sweden, for instance, there's a lot of groups that are apolitical. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, most of the scene is apolitical. It's kind of how the culture there has grown. I don't know whether that's to do with consensus politics in Nordic countries or whatever, but there is a there is a there's a almost uh, by design that you go to a curve in in uh, in in Sweden you go to Hammarby for instance and there is no one political ideology you, but you'll mm-hmm. find it all there you'll find communists there you'll find people very much on the far right those attached to the hooligan movement as well you find much much more there as well but there is you know there is a, there is an apoliticization apolit- of it i mean if you look at english Fan culture, I would say that's that's largely apolitical as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I point mm-hmm. to 
you know, the movement and its association to fascism, or they look at Liverpool or Celtic, for instance, and left leftist politics or uh, Irish nationalism. But, you know, for me, what is interesting is that whether they're political or not, it's that the organisational unit of football fans, whether that is within the casual culture or within ultras, has the potential to be an extremely effective political tool. And when you've got the right conditions, uh, you'll find that, uh, that having an extremely well-organised army of young, fit men who are motivated is extremely useful mm. when you have a revolutionary movement, if you have a far-right street movement, if you want to uh, fight a war, as we had in the Balkans, where you have units of fighters, militias, coming directly from the curves of Red Star, Sveni Zvezda, Red Star Belgrade, Hajduk Split, um, uh, Dinamo Zagreb, where if you go to those stadiums today, there are literally statues outside those three stadiums in those three cities that um, venerate these uh, militias that went and fought for their side of the world. I mean, Arkan and the mm. Delhi is the most famous example of that. Um, one of the things that I watched in real time happen was the role of ultras in, in a lot of the Arab Spring uprising yeah. and protests in North Africa. I spent a lot of time in Egypt, a lot of time with the Al-Ahli ultras, the Akhlawi. And again, it, it wasn't necessarily that these guys started out with a political agenda, uh, and it was mostly men. I mean, it wasn't exclusively men, but it was mostly men who are part of this. I mean, that's that's something again that's reflective of of um, say Egyptian culture. But you know, in terms of like large groups of people going to football, which you know is similar to lots of lots of other places around the world. But it was something that that like having a large group of organised people that was that went under the radar of state control and of police control. You know, it was almost a gap in the matrix in Egypt. Every other area of civil society had been effectively neutralised. The one area they could have didn't bother to deal with was because I think they think that football fans are idiots and it was more for them, was the football terrace. And you realise that when you have 5,000 people on a football terrace um, or in a football stadium that can share ideas, they can share... Um, chance uh, you know they can t collectively just you know come up with like okay today it's going to be about this this issue we're going to have a banner about this uh, that's incredibly powerful and the issue of the day of course was the fact that e before the Arab Spring Egypt was an inc increasingly unfree unfair place that was essentially a police state so the issue of the day was dealing with the police and being against the police is an absolutely core ultra value everywhere in the world. That's what ultra share. So you have this at the, at the, in the mid 2000s, you have ultra culture be, coming from Italy. And, you know, a lot of the capos of these groups bring that ultra culture and influence the curves of, especially in the Cairo clubs and create this movement that effectively becomes politicized because of the environment that it finds itself in. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say ultras or football fans are inherently political, no more than anyone else. But given the right conditions, mm -hmm. it is a really overlooked unit of uh, political change and potentially revolutionary change yeah. in many societies. One of the things you mentioned is primarily uh, a young man activity uh, being part of the ultras. 
But that does also make you know make make me wonder a little bit. Is, are we seeing a shift at all? I mean, are there any ultra groups that sort of you know highlight or emphasize or involve women? Um, and I mean, I would also imagine you know ethnic minorities. But you know, is ultra culture becoming more diverse? Um, it is when you see the new kind of the new kind of frontier of ultras. So it's still very much if you go to the Balkans, it's very much a man's game. Eastern Europe, very much a man's game. North Africa. I would say the same. Interestingly, when I went to Indonesia, you saw many, many uh, Muslim women and young girls who were part of those groups as well, which I found very interesting. It was incredibly diverse in terms of um, it, like men and women. Um, what's interesting, I think, is when you get to places like um, Germany, for instance, where it has become because German ultra is extremely political. Um, not just like it's on a macro and micro level, right? It is on a micro level like issues about the club, uh, ticket prices, all these issues, like, you know, problems with the owner, like very localised football issues. Then macro issues, which are like Israel-Gaza, mm-hmm. um, you know, interestingly, a lot of the German ultra groups um, have supported, uh, shown support with with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas most of the ultra groups are politically, have politicized or have been involved in politically showing that, you know, uh, through TIFOs have, have been the opposite. Uh, but Germany, that's one thing. But uh, there you have uh, groups like at Werder Bremen, um, you know, of St. Pauli is very well known, of course, at Hamburg, you know, going, you know, campaigning against sexism, campaigning against the treatment, a bad treatment of women in football stadiums that have far more women involved than they did before. The, the biggest example I saw actually was, and this gets laughed at a lot, it's, it's almost an oxymoron, is, is ultra culture in the US, which is, you know, it's just taken off. Um, and it's very interesting because it's seen as a bit of a joke, you know, by a lot of, you know, hardcore ultras like these like Amer- these American ultras. And you see these videos go viral of like American capos doing these mm. quite ridiculous, um, you know, chants. But then if you go to, you know, I went to LAFC, which is obviously a new club. I mean, they're all fairly new clubs. And you go there and you meet kind of the, the, the kind of the ultra collective they have there. And in the capo cages, you're meeting women, women, mm-hmm. women of the capo. You know, and they're they're Latina women, and they're uh, they're because LA is such a you know it's a melting pot city, going to have city of the future in many respects. That you have, uh, you know, it's it's Iranians or or first generation Iranians or first generation Argentines, first generation Brazilians, people from Central America. You know, it's a it's it's just a real mix, and they're all bringing that football culture there. And you realise that LA has actually always been a football city. It's just never really had a place mm-hmm. really to hang its hat and say. And they've tried a few times with a few clubs. Mm-hmm. LAFC seem to be seem to be succeeding more than most. But in American ultra culture, you see this, and and it it definitely has a much more left wing progressive root i think there that's 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 the political identity that that kind of constituency has picked up and you do see much more female um involvement and i think it it will change elsewhere but it it will take as it will change as quickly as the society changes because remember ultras in many respects are reflective of a very male working class culture Mm -hmm. and culture changes then then the terrace changes and the makeup of the terrace changes whether that's through uh the, the how many women go with ethnic minorities going and who's accepted into that space or not changes with with how that that is changing in that society yeah 
Can I just yeah. sort of that, so that if I may just so two things. First of all, uh, just for the listeners who may not necessarily know what a capo is, if you could just define that. But the other thing as well is I think that you know you thought a lot of what's coming through as well is about sort of the globalization of uh, of ultra culture and also the experiences that you're seeing elsewhere. Which brings me to a question because a lot of these newer markets, if you want to call them that, like Indonesia or, or, or East Asia or America, are looking at ultra culture from from Italy, from you know the old world, as it were. So yeah. the question then becomes, how much of this ultra culture is organic, or is it you know sort of? I mean, the authenticity associated with it. I mean, where do you yeah. see sort of the 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 the, the shift, the break between sort of what is being brought in from outside and what's coming from from within? Yeah, it's a good question because I mean, it is. I mean, it, it, I guess it's a form of cultural imperialism in a way. It's mm. Italian cultural supremacy around the world. Because when I go to Indonesia, you know, I'll go to. I went to see PSS Slayman in the south of Java Island, right? And you know, the ultras are in. I think they're in the Curvasud. You know, they're like, <laughs> like the like the 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 language of ultras is international. It, like, there's Italian words. For instance, capo, which means the leader. Uh, of the chance right so if you mm-hmm. if you look at, at the stand the curver which you know italian word for the for the the cheap curve behind the goal mm-hmm. people would stand the cheapest place where the ultras would stand if you look there it would be the person with the megaphone who's not looking at the game but they're looking at the fans and they mm-hmm. won't they won't watch a minute of football but they're there to coordinate the songs to they're basically like a hype man basically mm-hmm. or in lafc a hype woman you know so um, so you there there is a certain amount of kind of um, um, homogene, homogeneity, I suppose you would say, in terms of like you know it is recognisable and interesting that you would see that in Indonesia, mm. like you know the fact that the Green Street Hooligans is like probably one of the most famous films in Indonesian fan culture, and a lot of people could have follow that and wear that 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 culture and fashion. Um, where the individualism, where the local, because what it is, okay, this might be influential in the same way like punk music would have found the global audience or heavy metal, right? But then you have, you know, Sepultura, right, which brings mm-hmm. like a like a Brazilian sound to heavy metal. It brings mm-hmm. its own like very unique sound to it. Like, I think it's the Bela Horizonte um metal scene that kind of like mm-hmm. where they came from. It's the same with ultra culture. Okay, you have this you know, almost uniform language and there's an aesthetic that's very similar. But then it the the culture that it comes from, you see little roots of it. For instance, with the capo that I met, um, what club was it? Is in Indonesia. You know, he was he was an imam. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, you know, there's there's a, you know, you find covered women who are there um supporting the team in the same way that anybody else would be. You'd have like, you know, what they drink before, you know, some people do drink beforehand. You know, you have this drink called Intisari, which, you know, English people or Italian people drink beers on the way to the ground. Intisari is like this, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Buckfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived in Glasgow for a while, so I'm I'm familiar with it. It's really strong Buckfast. They serve it in a plastic bag. You've got to bite the corner off it and drink it. And it's like, I mean, it's the worst hangover I've ever had. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, when we took the coach, you know, on the way, everybody's been partying for 24 hours. We stop outside the mosque, half the bus goes and prays, comes back on and we go we go to the game. So um, there is there was already a fan culture that was really in Indonesia was already there. Mm. Uh, there were maniacs. It was kind of like a, there was a, it was it's a, it was a kind of very interesting culture where they weren't really capos. They were kind of like elder 
men who were in charge of the of the fans. And so there was this, so it was a very much kind of benevolent dictator that was in charge, but there was but it was an older character. So when I, you know, when I went to uh, see Procedure play, there was this there was this character who'd be, who this people made documentaries about him, but it was organized in a very, very uh Indonesian fashion. And then what happens, you know, with the fashion and all this kind of stuff, it kind of it kind of it takes a lot of these influences, but it's grafted onto the pre-existing culture that's there. So it doesn't smother it. That's the thing. It doesn't come and replace it. It just joins with it. It turns it into something else and it develops over time. And that's happened wherever you find ultra culture. You know, it's not a facsimile. It's mm. something that joins and evolves and becomes something different. Can I ask you something on the on the transnational networks? Because we often see sort of clubs with similar ideology aligned or or, or sort of acknowledging each other. And and one thing that was interesting, I'm sure you've followed and listeners have as well the sort of Celtic uh, Green Brigade, San Pauli. And one thing that was very interesting there is that you also have I don't know local supporters of I don't know Norwegian fan club of of San Pauli uh, discussing with. Um, Celtic club, Cyprus, the deposit. The so these kind of transnational networks, both in terms of among clubs, but also of supporter groups supporting the same clubs, how relevant are they from a political point of view? Do, do, do they matter? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, any transnational political network that, that, that shares uh, and organizes over thousands of people across large distances, I think is something that should be taken seriously. Um, and and actually, I think one of the main issues, I think, is that football fans have often been seen as thugs, right? They've been seen as as unthinking, unserious, unintelligent, right? But what, what do we see when we see someone like the Green Beret Brigade, whether you agree with it or not, right? But the, the message that the Green Beret Brigade send out uh, or the Savonis Vesta, for instance, when their ultras put a, um, you know, at the start of the Ukraine war, They've had a big TIFO, which had all of the American interventions since 1945, name of it each, on each side. It upset a lot of people because, of course, they forget about the Russian intervention or overlook um, Serbia's role in what was going on in Kosovo, for instance. But the point is, that these are these these are things that people have thought about. These are, uh, whether you disagree with it or not, an intelligent, coherent point. And um, these networks are incredibly important in, in in maintaining and spreading that message. So if you look at Sveni's Vez, the Red Star Belgrade, for instance, you know, they, they share political, cultural, religious friendships and ties with, for instance, Olympiakos in Greece, for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. with clubs in, in, um, with clubs in Russia, for obvious reasons. Um, you have political groups. So you have, you know, St. Pauli often aligning with left-wing groups, But then you also you, you you have you have something much more Italy, for instance, which is where this friendship kind of concept kind of comes from. Um, I mean, we were doing some filming last year, and we were with the Lazio ultras, uh, which have changed somewhat since the Ibiduchibile have have um, you know basically disbanded after the death of Diabolic, who who mm -hmm. I interviewed, out and out fascist no doubt about it but one of the most influential figures in in italian ultra scene he was assassinated a few months after we we did the interview i was there for the inter milan uh lazio game and those two groups actually the Chibler and well the group that's now disbanded from inter they've turned into something else uh they you know they shared 
same fascist ideology. And so they had a 30 year friendship and it's ongoing based on their shared political ideology. And that's something that has that happens with curves all across uh, Italy. And one of the things that's happened really since the 90s onwards is the capture of a lot of curves and a lot of groups and a lot of people within the movement by mafia and organized crime, partly because there is a, um, you know, being ultra, being part of an ultra group is about being outside of control and being outside of society in many respects, right? That you are your own person and it's about control over yourself and your group. And it's about being outside of the control of society and of police and of like mainstream institutions. So you can see if you live that life, that it isn't that much of a big gap or a yeah. big jump to say, you know, I will live, I will live the outlaw life, then I will lead the outlaw life. And so it's attractive for a lot of people to be part of that, but also in the same way that we talked about the revolutionary um, potential of ultras mm -hmm. or the potential of ultras to a mafia group, these groups are also potentially very good at running businesses for them. They're very good at enforcement. They're very good, loyal, organized, structured, hierarchical operators that can sit, fit seamlessly yeah. to their operations. You can see why they would be attracted to uh you know hiring or recruiting people from that movement so yeah but the main the main thing is that the that this transnational transnationalism i suppose of 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 ultra groups is something that has always existed and then we talked about globalization earlier but before it was pen pals then it was you know phone calls um then emails and now video calls so these things happen um quicker and easier but you know, sometimes these groups are friends for decades and, and it yeah. can quickly it can quickly end as well. I mean, uh there's a group, I mean, with the Akhlawi, which who are still kind of operating, although very difficult to operate in Egypt, but they had a friendship with Freiburg in in um in Germany, uh, based, you know, a, a long way, partly on Amir Fami, who's the kind of founder of the Akhlawi. Um, and was a friend of uh, many people within within Freiburg, and so they had a, there's a really deep, strong friendship. There's a there's a bench outside the new Freiburg ground dedicated in his honor because he died unfortunately of cancer uh, a few years ago. And uh, but their friendship is looks like it's over because Freiburg showed solidarity for the Israeli hostage victims, whereas for the Akhlawi, it's the it's the solidarity for the, the Palestinian victims of, of the Israeli bombardment that should take precedence. And the Palestinian issue is such a fundamental political issue for that group that, that it meant that the friendship couldn't stand. So we'll see if that, if that is a, a long lasting thing, but it shows how real world political events change things and shows that you, you know, equally you have this cross national relationship that exists where one could not have existed 30 years ago, with a largely working class Egyptian uh, movement, you know, taking place in North Africa and, you know, one of the kind of richest, wealthiest, whitest corners of Southwest Germany. Well, the thing that sort of comes out, especially on the, you know, what you've just been talking about there, James, is the, the anti-social dimension side of, of, of ultra culture. Beyond that, are there other, any other reasons why ultras would be considered a, you know, a problem or, you know, a security threat? Uh, I mean, there is an argument against them, but it's also an argument usually made by people who want a different type of 
experience a different type mm. of game. Look, there's a lot of ultras that are bastards. That's the whole point, mm. right? Is you like that they are the whole point about the ultra movement, I think, is is and, and it's a youth movement. Let's I mean mm-hmm. a lot of the Italian ultra groups now, and they're still still the same guys in charge that have been there for 20, 30 years. But at its root, it's a it's a it's a youth movement about pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable for them and for society, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah, it's about putting people's noses out of place, putting out a joint. That's what I was attracted to it. I was attracted mm-hmm. to this idea that, you know, I mean, maybe eventually people could have grow up and they go get a job, but a lot of people don't and they want to live this life and they want to be part of this life because it, it, it's something that that challenges authority and they want to challenge authority. And I don't think that necessarily that is a bad thing, but it does mean that there is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes with that that isn't necessarily um, going, to, going to please everybody. And the what I've always looked at it as is what it brings to the game, and not and this isn't just ultra culture. I mean, there's a you know this is also fan culture that's not ultra culture. I mean, mm. one place where we don't really have ultra culture is England, right? For instance, mm-hmm. and but we do have a very defined or did have a very defined kind of fan culture that equally, you know, stood in opposition of authority or wanted to be something that was. Uh, you know stood in opposition you know there on its own terms and the way i look at it is that what it what they bring what the fans and, and these cultures that they've these incredibly diverse florid powerful um hugely popular cultures which have spread worldwide what that brings to the game is far greater than the negatives that come out of it which of course we there's there are things that people talk about with violence and racism and all these other issues. And I, I actually I've got um I got some messages from some Dutch journalists which really pissed me off the other week. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, they've they've got a problem at the moment, or the problems you know, so it's a kind of ultra kind of what's the word, like panic. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, an IX game got called off because flares were being thrown on the pitch and there's be, people have been rioting. There've been riots at, at, at kind of anti-COVID marches and all this kind of thing. It's like, what do we do to stop these ultras? Like, should we ban them like, like the British do, or should we ban them the way the Italians do? Right. And it was, and it was like, of course, in that the framing of the question was ultimately like, these are bad people. We need to control them. And I'm, I'm like, no, hang on a second. This, the problem here is not ultras. This, it's not an inherent problem with ultra culture because you can have something uh, very beautiful and inclusive in ultra culture. You can point to lots of examples around the world. You can have a progressive revolutionary movements come out of ultra culture. The problem isn't ultras. The problem is you. The problem is the Netherlands. There's something dark and very um, troubling going on in Dutch society at the root, at the working class level, at the, the, the at the level of. Um, normal people who feel disenfranchised and disillusioned so much so that they've just voted for someone like mm-hmm. Gert Wilders to be prime minister. It's very difficult with the Dutch system because they have to form a coalition government. Mm-hmm. But the point is that's that is the problem. Right? Look at the farmers' protest against kind of you know which has been overtaken by uh, conspiracy theorists. You know, and how that is you know the fact that women politicians can't uh, be uh, are leaving politics in the Netherlands in their droves because the amount of online abuse they get that's not to do with ultras that's to do with something troubling that's happening in and in, in Dutch society and this is just one valve right mm-hmm. this is just one mirror by which you can place it and so 
um in the end it was they did a they did a, a, a this this interview i think it was a volkskrant which is i guess the equivalent of the times i suppose in mm -hmm. and um I've never had a response to it like that before. It was it was incredible. It was like I, I was getting messages. A lot of ultras that I speak to, they kind of like, yeah, you're all right, but you're a journalist, which means ultimately you're an asshole. But you're an all right kind of asshole. <laughs> so kind of accept like accept me you know, like with arm's length. But this was like, yeah, finally someone said it how it is. Like we're not. It's not us that's the problem necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not the culture that's the problem you know, look at the deeper meanings for it. And I think there is, I think there is a lot to be said for that. Can I say this, this issue of, of uh, football fans lacking, or this example of football fans lacking or not lacking journalists brings us back to your own club and to the club you support and to this contribution uh, to fan culture. Because you didn't tell us who you support and why, why they're important. Yeah, well, I, yeah, so I support West Ham United traveling around the world and I've, probably reported from maybe a hundred countries, maybe a bit more than a hundred countries. Um, like saying that you're a West Ham fan is like, it's, it's really weird. Like it's quite a strange reaction from people because um, people really uh, respond to it, especially when you're outside of England. I mean, it, you, I'd get a very different response if I went to South London um, at near like, you know, I went to the new den and I said I was a West Ham fan, but like, if I mean, like, I, was in, <laughs> I, was in, I was in Israel, actually the first time I'd ever come across ultras was in Israel and this was a long time ago, maybe 2004. And I'd, I mean, in the flesh, up, up close, and it was with La Familia, which is like the kind of ultra-nationalist far-right group of Beitar Jerusalem, which is all, itself has has a fan base and has a kind of like, you know, I mean, strong connections to Likud and the revisionist movement and Zionist revisionist movement. So it, mm -hmm. it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, these guys should not like someone like me and they didn't until i said i was a west ham fan and they started singing i'm west they didn't speak in english but they started singing i'm west ham till i die in a cockney accent because they'd watched green street hooligans and it turns out <laughs> that like traveling around the world green street hooligans is like you know like it, it's one of the most influential things i've ever seen because everywhere i'd go i would meet people who watched it almost see it as a documentary yeah, and yeah, and yeah. What is fascinating because what you're saying is, I mean, we talk, we've been talking about you know ultra culture around the world, um, and yeah. the fact that there isn't one in the UK or there isn't one in England, and yet yeah. for all of these groups that you come across, you know, this film about a particular aspect of English band culture seems to be that kind of you know, foundation stone. Yeah, there is, and 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 in a in a lot of places it's mixed as well, like casual culture, and which is what something very mm. very uh, different, like a, the the British hooliganism and ca casual culture of kind of the eighties, nineties, seventies, eighties, and nineties, um, is in a lot of places it's mixed. So in terms of the aesthetic, um, in terms of kind of you know the violence, it's it, it, there is still a hooliganism movement outside of the UK, but a lot of it is is disconnected from they're like the way to think about it is like the ira and Sinn fein right mm -hmm. like the Sinn fein and the ultras and they've got like an armed wing right which is like how most like hooligan groups exist now they're like they're attached but they're they're not the same so you'll mm -hmm. see there's a kind of extremely well organized uh fighting scene that's almost it's, it's called different names or call a footballer in russian ustavka in polish uh, boss fights in in the Dutch speaking world, where you have these organised groups that fight, 
eight on eight, 10 on 10, um, you know, and it is like no weapons, very well organized, highly illegal, extremely brutal, but very much a self-contained sport that's away from the violence of the football stadiums, mm -hmm. which is, which has mostly gone down in the past 20 years. I mean, I know we've seen a resurgence in certain uh, places. I mean, France is one place where we've seen it uh, coming back in the stadiums. But again, these are problems that are, that are, much deeper than than football fan culture but yeah it is interesting that there isn't there was you know my publisher asked me about this why is there not a, a chapter in england and i tried to explain that you know this was something that um whilst the rest of of europe were uh adopting this because i mean germany had a very english style hooliganism scene really right up until 2000s and then uh, the popularity of Italian football meant that ultras started to come in. It, 2000, 2001, 2002 is a really crucial year because that happens in, in Turkey, for instance. So the ultra culture comes yeah. in and, and kind of uh, uh, joins with this pre-existing fan culture where their capos were amigos, right? These They were called amigos and they had like, you know, something very similar to an ultra culture, but it was, you know, obviously extremely Turkish. And then suddenly you have, you know, these the, the colour, and it happens because Galatasaray go and play European football, you know, for the first time, win the UEFA Cup. But they're travelling to all these places. They bring back that influence mm. to, to Istanbul. And so, yeah, you see this everywhere. But just when this is happening, you know, in the rest of the world, um, you know, we, we have this kind of ruinous uh, hooligan culture, which almost destroys football. Um, we have the Hillsborough disaster, which, you know, which is down to the police and which is down to bad management and down to terrible stadiums and obviously fucking awful government cover up as well off the back of it. But that sparks a change that leads to the Taylor report and the birth of the Premier League and a new era of all seater stadium mm. where the, the way that the game is policed and the, 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 the value of the game that is being created doesn't leave any space for any yeah. kind of group to exist because one of the things that is uh universal with ultra groups although the authorities try to crack down on them they have worked their way and created a space for themselves within the game in each country that is almost impossible for them to be moved out that people have tried they brought the pasalig card system in uh in turkey you had the defidi banning orders in in italy you know, they've, they've tried to legislate ultras that they can't do it because there is a, there's a space within the stadiums and within football culture for them. There isn't that. That doesn't exist um, in in English football. Mm -hmm. uh, the only place where it does is there's a little bit within Scottish football because you have the Green Brigade. But even then, you can see how it's very easy for the authorities to essentially kick them out of the stadiums. Um, there's a little bit at Crystal Palace. But the fact is that the owners... Uh, the owners hold all the cards, and so they don't. Yeah. They have not allowed an ultra culture, which would ultimately, eventually, lead to them, you know, being it will, it, it will, you know, if they it will hold their feet to the fire. Owners don't want that in the stadiums. So yeah. that is very much being. So where you find ultra culture kind of flourishing in England is is in the lower leagues yeah. where there is space, and it's the same in Italy where in the lower leagues you find ultra culture where people are, you know. They might have a banning order to not go to Juventus, but they can go down the road to another club and go there instead. So um, it's it's very interesting that there, that it isn't a mainstream concept in terms of in top league football in England, although much of the aesthetic is coming in.
I've mm. noticed. I've yeah. seen like clubs are making flags and tifos, you know, like yeah. you see, like which you know you see Man City doing it, and it's mm. I mean it's so plastic. I mean people talk about American ultras, but the most plastic thing you can see is like Man City having a kind of like you know the management printing mm. out bags and and banners to put up. I mean it's just it's so inauthentic. Mm. Um. That's but absolutely yeah, fascinating, Jameson. Thank you yeah, very it's much. Really it's interesting, been... and and we should also mention as well, didn't we, Francesco, that you know the uh, what James was just saying about you know the, his publisher and the book chapter are not including England. I mean, I think we're talking specifically about his book, which came out a few years ago, called Thirteen Twelve: Among the Ultras: A Journey with the World's Most Extreme Fans, which was published by Penguin. And of course, you've also published a number of other works as well, James, haven't you? Including uh, When Friday Comes: Football War and Revolution in the Middle East, when which alludes to your time in. In Egypt and as well as others. Um, so, if listeners want to find out more, that these are these are the the books we that James has published, and we really really encourage people to pick them up. I think um, is it the one in the Middle East one that just had a, a um... yeah. When Friday comes was I mean when Friday comes is kind of like my I mean I wrote it years ago when mm. I just I was probably too young to write it really, but um, <laughs> so so much has happened that I was allowed to kind of and I was really lucky that that I was allowed to kind of update it and add yeah. a lot of the because because I started my reporting career in the Middle East, I was very lucky to kind of landed there in 2004, 2005, just when the Gulf decided that we're going to spend a load of our money on sport and football. Yeah. And, and this obviously has an extremely political uh, reasoning, um, whether it's, you know, whether you can look at kind of state building, identity building, but obviously soft and hard power influence, which we've, which has led from, I mean, I remember going and seeing Marcel Desailly play for for Al Garafa in 2004 because they'd spent loads of money trying to get foreigners into the league to try and improve the national team. To then last year going and standing and watching Qatar at the first game the World Cup they hosted. That journey, you know, says a lot about the journey about uh, not just about football but uh, of money and shifting yeah. power, multipolar world. I think, and so yeah, I was really lucky to be able to kind of update the book and, and I was I was even luckier just to be there at the birth of or not birth of it, mm-hmm. but like at one beginning of it. And then um yeah, but I mean it's now that we have Saudi Arabia um is is completely changing the fabric of football and sport and in, in many other areas as well that I feel in a way that we're only at the beginning of this process, not the end of it. Yeah. And maybe we can have you come back and talk about that at some point later on. But James, what, the subject, the discussion you've given us about ultra culture has been so rich and fascinating and hopefully, you know, a real education to our, to our listeners as well. Now, Francesco, is there anything else we should, should, should say? Well, we should remind listeners to like, share um, the episode, send it to their friends and rate us on, on, we are all, on all of the main platforms, aren't we, Guy? Yeah, yeah. So we With, want some uh, feedback. Uh, we want to, yeah, yeah. We yeah. want people to get in touch to suggest what what else we should pick. And you have to promise that uh, next week you're gonna come out of the cave where you are this week, and we can hear you properly. Yeah, yeah. My apologies on that one. But thanks <laughs> so much. Thanks so much, James, for, for for taking the time to talk to us. James, thank you very much. It's been great. You do sound like a 1980s. Like it's like listening to like a radio commentator on on Radio Five Live in the 1990s. That's so. There's a retro. There's a retro broadcasting element to that, it. So maybe that, can... is, that is, um, you, you've seen through me. That is what I'm aiming for. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. Yeah. Uh, can I just say we got other great episodes landing Monday morning as usual. 
and it's yeah. going to be Valentina Fedele on uh, the politics of football and religion and Islam specifically. So it's going to be one not to miss. Um, just thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, James. And thanks to our listeners. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye.